Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We'll talk about immigration today, including about an ACLU of Michigan report that suggests we're seeing the same racial profiling here along the northern border that is so familiar along the border with Mexico. And Shikadalmia of the Week will join to talk about President Biden's difficult choices crafting a more humane national immigration policy. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you've chosen to join us today. Reports of border control agents racially profiling people at the southern border are pretty common, and we've all heard those stories and the other horrors that immigrants face near the border with Mexico. But a new report by the ACLU of Michigan shines light on what's happening right here. Although the border with Canada doesn't grab nearly as many headlines, this report says Border Patrol here also uses racial profiling to target people in Michigan. The ACLU of Michigan calls this the first ever investigation of Border Patrol's Michigan operations. It's based on thousands of customs and border protection documents spanning nine years, including records of more than 13,000 stops which detail which police agency initiated the stop, the location of the stop, as well as the national origin and the skin tone of the person who was apprehended. Joining me now to talk about this riveting new report is ACLU of Michigan attorney Monica Andrade. Monica, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me on. So uh, let's just jump right into it. What does this study tell us about racial profiling at the northern border of this country that uh, exists here in in Metro Detroit? And what conclusions should we be drawing from it? Yeah, of course. So there's three main data points that came out of the report. Um, So Border Patrol operates far from the border. They engage in blatant racial profiling, as you said, and they're deeply entangled with local and state law enforcement agencies here in Michigan. I can go into more of those in detail. And so what happens in Michigan and what the data is showing is that based on Border Patrol's interpretation of what the 100-mile zone is, they routinely are stopping, they're searching and arresting people here in Michigan, including both U.S. citizens and permanent residents um, in encounters that are unrelated to border enforcement at all. And let's talk about that 100-mile radius. I'm not sure a lot of people necessarily understand what kind of jurisdiction Border Patrol has on an international border. They think, well, it's just the border itself or the area right around the border. But as you point out, it's far more extensive. Explain to our listeners how broadly Border Patrol can patrol our streets and and stop people and, and make arrests. Yes. So CBP claims authority under a statute uh, to conduct certain warrantless searches within a reasonable distance of the border or from the border. And so that federal regulation uh, that interprets this was issued back in 1953 with uh, little deliberation, little review. And so what happens is that these outdated regulations define what a reasonable distance is and that defines it as 100 air miles from any external boundary. But the agency is supposed to determine the reasonable distance by considering a variety of factors. But what happens in practice is that the agency is using 100 miles as the default and it's failed to consider whether 100 miles is even reasonable. For example, in places like Detroit, where it's a major city that is next to an international border. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. A lot of people would be shocked to know that uh, Border Patrol considers the entire state of Michigan based on the way that they read the 100 mile zone and even more shocked to find out that they live in a border zone. And what does that mean when you live in this in this border zone? What what is it that uh, the Border Patrol is empowered to do within that area? Yes, yeah, so the Border Patrol in that area can set up uh, things such as checkpoints, 
um, and they can do roving patrols, for example, which is what a lot of the report is based on, these roving patrols. But what happens is that in practice, and as the report shows, Border Patrol routinely ignores or they misunderstand their limits of their legal authority and individual stops. Um, and, and it results in a lot of violations of our constitutional rights. And so, the, you know, back in the day, there was a lot of talk of this is a constitution-free zone, and that's not true. Uh, Border Patrol can argue that they're exempt from limitations, but they are wrong and they still have to follow the Fourth Amendment. Mm. And how involved are local law enforcement agencies with this kind of uh, with this kind of activity? You you made reference to that just a little earlier in the conversation, but but talk about how deeply teamed up and involved local law enforcement is with Border Patrol in these efforts. Yeah, so what we learned from the data analysis that is that our local, state, and our county law enforcement agencies are deeply entangled with Border Patrol. And so, for example, uh, arrests that were first initiated by a local law enforcement agency being involved, so for example, a traffic stop, those make up almost half of the arrests of the data that was analyzed. And then another data point was is that MSP, so Michigan State Police, is by far the largest law enforcement agency that is responsible for initiating these kinds of detentions, um, roughly about 37%, uh, followed by Macomb County and then the Detroit Police Department. And when you say that these are the agencies that initiate these stops, in other words, they are pulling someone over and talking to them and deciding that there is a Border Patrol issue or an immigration question and, and getting Border Patrol involved? So, Stephen, that's where there are some issues uh, arise. The two main reasons why Border Patrol is being called by MSP or any local law enforcement agency that is involved um, the two reasons that are being cited are identification assistance and translation assistance. But the data there is also troubling. For example, in more than 30% of cases that involved identification assistance, the individuals were presenting some form of valid ID, but Border Patrol was still called anyway. Mm. And then for translation assistance, the, the data there shows that in the 26% of cases that involved a Border Patrol agent being called to provide this translation assistance, not a single case involves people who spoke any other language other than Spanish. And so it appears to us, and the data strongly suggests, that these are just being used as cover to uh, hold people to then call Border Patrol. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Monica Andrade. She is an attorney with the ACLU of Michigan. Uh, we're talking about a new report that suggests very strongly that Border Patrol here in Michigan, along the border with Canada, uh, is indulging in the same kind of racial profiling that we are familiar with hearing about at the southern border with Mexico. Uh, we're talking about what that means for us who live here in Michigan, how extensive the Border Patrol uh, powers are here in Michigan, and what that means for people who are not just immigrants, but also U.S. citizens. As always, uh, we would love to hear from you as well. Uh, what do you think about interactions with Border Patrol here in southeast Michigan? I know a lot of people have interactions with Border Patrol here. I've been pulled over by Border Patrol before uh, in southwest Detroit. Um, have you experienced something that you would call racial or ethnic profiling? Uh, what do you think needs to happen to address this issue of profiling or harassment uh, by the Border Patrol. And give us a call and let us know how involved you think local law enforcement should be with helping Border Patrol in this uh, regard. Uh, the ACLU report finds a lot of crossover between a number of local police agencies uh, and that federal agency. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. And you can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or if you go to Twitter and put comments, we'll try to include you in the conversation as well. Uh, again, we would really love to hear from people who have had interactions with Border Patrol, been stopped by them, been questioned by them, and uh, give us a sense of why you think they stopped you. Give us a sense of what those interactions uh, were like. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, Monica, before we go to listeners, uh, I want to talk about the distinction uh, here between um, immigrants and uh, U.S. citizens. Uh, in the report, you, you find that U.S. citizens are, uh, are just 
as likely, I guess, to to encounter Border Patrol and uh, and be questioned. Yeah, absolutely. The, what the data uh, shows in the report is that actually one in three, uh, well, one third of individuals stopped were U.S. citizens. And so it's not just impacting our undocumented community. And then another 12 percent uh, that were stopped were here lawfully. And so in other words, half of those stopped by Border Patrol were either U.S. citizens or they were non-citizens who are lawfully present in the country. And really the only reason they were pulled over is because of the color of their skin and based on that they become suspect. Yeah. And in general, uh, would you say that the the goal of this is some form of harassment? I mean, in other words, is there no real grounding for the Border Patrol to be stopping as many people as they are and asking them uh, these questions or becoming involved in as many stops that other police agencies initiate other than to send a message uh, to, to immigrants, legal or otherwise, uh, that they're unwelcome here in Southeast Michigan? I think that's right, Stephen. If we just only look at, for example, the mission of Border Patrol here in Michigan, and that mission is to police the U.S.-Canadian border. But the data there shows that only 1.3% of people that the agency arrested initially enter without authorization from Canada. And of those that were arrested while entering from Canada, 50% were Canadian citizens and 20% were from another Europe, or from a European country. And so in other words, even though the majority of people that are trying to enter Michigan without authorization are from Canada or other European or, or European countries, the records show that somehow Border Patrol targets its enforcement efforts on people of color who did not even enter the U.S. from Canada. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. Uh, let's go to Ed in Detroit. Ed, welcome to the show. There are serious problems with the 100-mile rule, and, and it may very well be time for the federal courts to take a look at that and determine whether it's still a reasonable distance today compared with when the rule was adopted, uh, was first uh, uh, supported by the courts. One of the problems is the courts accepted the Border Patrol's argument that they needed checkpoints to to defend uh, the immigration laws. And the court said these checkpoints should only be for the limited purpose of determining whether a person has a right to be within the United States. Over the last more than a half century now, these checkpoints have morphed into general law law enforcement checkpoints where you will have state and local police looking for things that have nothing to do with whether you're lawfully in the U.S. Uh, and uh, it would be wonderful if the ACLU could uh, could find a good case to take to the federal courts to see whether whether the, the courts are still willing to live with the decisions they made mm. decades ago. Mm. Uh, Ed, I really appreciate the call and uh, the observation and the, the questions there. Monica Andrade, uh, what do you make of what Ed's saying here? Yeah, I think that's right. And thanks so much for calling in. You know, the ACLU has documented numerous cases of abuse by Border Patrol and filed lawsuits to get more information about uh, specifically what Ed is talking about, the checkpoints. Uh, our report covers a lot of the roving patrols, so this, uh, Border Patrol agents roaming around our neighborhoods. But given Border Patrol's lack of transparency and accountability, um, and as, he, as Ed mentioned, in the absence of any type of oversight, there's still a lot that we don't know um, about the impact of these types of enforcements. And so part of the recommendations that we asked for in the report is calling for this administration to fundamentally reform the agency. And um, additionally, we want to see the outdated regulations that we're talking about, the 100 milestone regulations, they need to be limited to keep Border Patrol out of our communities. And so, for example, one thing that can happen um, or should happen is that the Department of Homeland Security, they really need to hold public meetings to get public input on what distance is reasonable. I think ultimately our position is that if a regulation that outlines Border Patrol's authority um, affects uh, Detroiters and affects Michiganders, that authority needs to take into consideration the impact on residents that live in border communities like Detroit. Hmm. Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number. On Twitter, Big Neo asks, what has to happen to give the Border Patrol authorization to stop someone? Does some kind of traffic violation have to happen? 
or do they have free reign to detain uh, people? That's a great question, Monica. How does that work? Yeah, so in order for a Border Patrol agent um, to pull someone over uh, for the purposes of an immigration investigation, they have to have what is called a reasonable suspicion. That's the standard. Um, But the records um, show that a lot of times Border Patrol agents are citing these arbitrary and nonsensical reasons why uh, they're pulling people over and they're using them as a pretext to pull people over. So, for example, and I keep getting in the numbers here, but, for example, in 19.2% of stops, the fact that a person was speaking Spanish or some other foreign language is what's used as a basis to meet this reasonable suspicion. Um, and in 76% of cases, what the Border Patrol agent does is that they cite a person's alleged reaction to having seen that agent or the Border Patrol vehicle. But what we see over and over and over again in the data is that boilerplate language is being used by Border Patrol. And so what they do is over and over again, we see individuals being described as, for example, the person was appearing rigid. They were staring straight ahead, which we hope everyone does when they drive. They looked at or acknowledged the Border Patrol agent, or they didn't look at or acknowledge the Border Patrol agent. And so, again, in other words, either looking at the agent or not looking at the agent is viewed as suspicious. Um, And then in other records, uh, some of the templated language uh, simply cited the fact that a vehicle is registered to a woman. And so ultimately, the message that the data sends is disturbingly clear. If you are black, if you're a person of color, any reaction to the side of Border Patrol or an agent or a vehicle is going to be deemed suspicious and used to justify a traffic stop. And it shouldn't be that way. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Sophia in Hamtramck. Welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Hi. Uh, yeah, I was explaining that uh, what happened to me was several years ago before you needed an enhanced license to cross the border into Canada. And uh, my brother and his wife were in town from Arizona, and she was born and raised in Mississippi. Uh, she's one of the uh, Mississippi Delta Chinese population. Mm. And so we went to dinner, we came back, we were asked our citizenship, and then we were told to park the car and come inside. And, uh, you know, they, they asked, you know, where we were born, and actually they asked her first. Mm. You know, where were you born? Where did you go to high school? And then asked the same of myself and my brother. And uh, they did let us go, but my brother was very angry because he said we were just profiled because Lisa's Chinese. Yeah, yeah. wow. Uh, and can you give us a sense of just how that felt, just the... the the violation that I imagine that you felt uh, at that moment. Um, yeah, it was, it was just, it was really odd. It was, um, you know, we, we couldn't understand why we were being asked to pull over in the first place. And then as we left, one of my, one of my brothers said, Lisa was just profiled. That's when it hit me like, Oh wow, that is just what happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> Yeah, it's uh, it's very disconcerting. It's uh, it's unsettling. Yeah. yeah. Especially now, you know, looking back on that, and right now, uh, Lisa doesn't go anywhere unescorted because of the anti-Asian sentiment right now. So. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Sophia, I'm really glad you called uh, and and shared that that story. I think you know uh, whether you are being profiled or you're with someone who's being profiled, I think there is a real, um, a real effect on, on your outlook in terms of your place in this country uh, when that happens. Uh, again, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Dan in Gross Point. Dan, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Hi. Uh, a few years back, I was driving, I live in Gross Point Park, and I was driving down by the Riverside Park there where uh, there's the one uh, large park and then the place where everybody goes fishing. Uh, just going down there, and I always check things out, see how things are progressing. Pulled over by Border Patrol for no reason at all. Um, you know, I asked him what the reason was and, and why I was being pulled over, and it was simply because on my Honda Element at the time, it had a license plate uh, wraparound thing where the car was purchased from Victory Honda in Monroe. So he said I was being uh, it was suscious, and there was drug running from. The Toledo area to Detroit, mm. and he thought I was running drugs. 
Mm. And I said, well, if you simply would have ran my license uh, plate, you would have seen I live right here in Gross Point Park. So why am I being stopped? I can't even go to my own parks in the area without uh, being harassed. So eventually let go, but no reason, not speeding, nothing, just being pulled over for that simple thing. And my, my trust in Border Patrol is very little because I think they just look for things to do and, and pick and pluck Right. and try and find stuff instead of really patrolling the border. Yeah. Dan, I uh, really appreciate the call. I'm really sorry that happened. Uh, Monica, is this a, a type of dragnetting that the Border Patrol are engaging in, the kind of you know broad net being cast in order to just kind of catch random, random people without a focus on real wrongdoing? Yeah, Stephen, I think so. If we look at the um, just the mass growth that the agency has had in the past two decades, decades, it's um, it's pretty phenomenal. Um, for example, in the Detroit sector, the number of agents has gone from 35 a- agents back in the year 2000 to about 404 um, in 2019. Mm-hmm. And so what we uh, realized is that that's a 1,054% increase. And so by far, that's the largest rate of growth of any Border Patrol sector in the country. And so what you have is a whole bunch of Border Patrol agents that don't really have anything else to do. And what they're doing is they're terrorizing communities. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. Let's quickly take Rob in Detroit. Rob, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm good. Um, so my story has to do with uh, it's a little bit off topic, but it's it's about the Border Patrol's uh, response at the airport. Hmm. Yeah, go ahead, Rob. Is from China, and. Uh, you, know, you go through the immigration first, right? And then you go after that through uh, customs and border patrol. So we had already gotten through immigration and we are now standing with people who were either citizens, they had U.S. passports or had a green card and were permanent residents of the U.S. And the, the customs and border patrol agents standing there were not just asking questions that were out of line, but were truly nasty about it and really mean to people. Uh, you know, what are you doing here? What What's your purpose in this country? And I'm not done with you. And, you know, pointing them over to get their bags inspected. And meanwhile, my girlfriend and I are walking towards them and we're white and they just wave us through. Mm. Mm. And so I think it speaks to a cultural problem with culture, with, uh, Customs and Border Patrol, not yeah. just this radius that they have to deal with, but right. they had a clear issue with people entering this country from another. Hmm. Wow, Rob, I, I really appreciate the call and uh, and your explanation of, of what you saw. Um, Monica, I wonder if you could talk briefly about what you think some of the solutions are to what we're seeing here. Yeah, of course, Stephen. So I think I can split that off in two ways. So I think first at the national level and then um, some recommendations at the local level. And so I think at the national level, as I said earlier, we we have to call on this administration to fundamentally reform the agency. As everyone who's called today um, has shown is that we need a reduction in Border Patrol agents. They're um, being abusive here in the Detroit sector and other areas. And so we really need to reform the agency and we also got to get rid of these uh, outdated regulations uh, to limit the Border Patrol uh, to the immediate bordering to get them out of our communities. Um, and then at the local level, based on the data that we saw, uh, state and local law enforcement agencies need to end their entanglement with Border Patrol. There's absolutely no reason why a uh, local uh, police um, should be involved with uh, Border Patrol at all. There's no reason why they should be doing federal immigration um, enforcement. And they also need to end discriminatory policing practices. Um, for example, what, uh, when it comes to the translation services, as I was talking about earlier, again, there, there's no reason why uh, state and local law enforcement agencies uh, shouldn't have access to internal and independent translation services instead of calling Border Patrol. Um, and then another solution that we call for in the report is to going back to pre-2008 and restoring uh, driver's licenses for all. Um, and that simply would make law enforcement's job immensely easier for identification purposes. If one of the reasons that uh, local law enforcement agencies are fighting for calling Border Patrol. Let's fix that. Let's get everyone driver's licenses. Um, and local law enforcement agencies should be able to identify a Michigan driver's license. And then I think finally, 
which points to what everyone is talking about. We need to know what's going on. We can't hold governments accountable and these agencies accountable if we don't have the data. And so we need to establish comprehensive public data collection processes, mm-hmm. uh, uh, processes to ensure that transparency and that there is accountability with an agency like this. Okay, Monica Andrade, attorney with the ACLU of Michigan. It was great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk with Chica Dalmia about her new piece in The Week, which argues that Biden has very, very few good choices on immigration, so he might as well just concentrate on making the right choices. Stay with us. For more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined the show. For four years, we had a president whose policies on immigration and border crossing were absolutely retrograde, almost to the point of being medieval. So how does a new Democratic president transition from a policy that was defined by cruelty and racism to one that's more compassionate, yet still effective at controlling a difficult situation? My next guest says that, at least politically, President Biden's choice on the issue is lose-lose. The weak columnist Sheikha Dalmia says he's going to get blasted for whatever decisions he makes, whatever they are. So he might as well focus on doing what's right. Sheikha, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on, Stephen. It's been a while. Yes, it has been a while. Uh, and I've been following uh, a lot of your social media postings about this immigration issue as we've gotten into the early months of the Biden administration. And I've been really interested at your take on, on these things. So I'm really glad you're here to share this with our listeners. Let's start um, with what we spent the first part of our show talking about Today, we're talking about profiling by the Border Patrol here in Michigan. Uh, you say you've had your own experience with profiling on the northern border. Uh, let's start with you just telling our listeners what that was like. Uh, well, you know, uh, Stephen, uh, I lived in West Bloomfield, Michigan, for almost 18 years, uh, and Michigan actually for about 30 years, just recently moved to D.C., and uh, given that the Canadian border, uh, you know, is we share a Canadian border uh, in Detroit, uh, I have friends and family in Toronto where whom I would visit, you know, a few times a year. And, uh, and you know, my husband, who is, uh, uh, you know, white and uh, uh, not a naturalized American with an accent like me, um, you know, he and I would drive together. And so we conducted a little mini experiment of our own uh, where sometimes he would drive, uh, he would be in the driver's seat when we crossed the border and sometimes I would be in the driver's seat. And it's a completely unscientific uh, experiment, but it would invariably be the case that, uh, you know, since he's uh, a wife without an accent, he would get pulled over for that secondary inspection far less frequently than if I were in the driver's seat. So after, you know, like a few years of this, we just made it standard policy to have him drive rather than me when we cross the border. I mean, it's no big deal, but it does kind of like show you, uh, you know, there's definitely if you're an immigrant and if you speak with an accent uh, and if you have brown skin, you know, those are three strikes against you. And, uh, you know, you may be targeted because maybe you are crossing illegally one way or the other. So, yeah, uh, uh, yeah so that, that sort of, uh, we at least have some anecdotal evidence for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you say it's not a huge deal and you just adapt and have the person who's white drive the car instead of the person who's non-white. But I mean, there is a there is a infringement on liberty there that I think is is important. The idea that if you are here and here legally, 
that you should not have to fear the kind of questioning or even harassment that uh, that Border Patrol uh, directs at at people it thinks are uh, are here illegally, and the way that it deduces who's here illegally or not is pretty crude and quite racialized. I mean, those are things that that I, you know, look, as an African-American, I mean, there are all kinds of things that I've adapted in my life to avoid trouble with authorities. But I, I guess I don't think they're not a big deal. I think that they are kind of central to, to the narrative about equality and inequality and how it plays out in our country. Yeah, no, I, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, that's completely right. I mean, you know, at some level, you sort of internalize uh, that, you know, this is reasonable, that what's happening is kind of reasonable, even mm-hmm. though it's not reasonable. Uh, you know, you start looking at, uh, you know, the whole thing from sort of the law enforcement standpoint, even when you intellectually, like I do, you know, I'm a libertarian Mm -hmm. and you kind of, you know, you disagree intellectually, but at some level, you know, you start sort of making accommodations for their needs as opposed to your rights. And that's absolutely true. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous because as your previous guest pointed out, the border is now not only at the border, the border has moved 100 miles inland. And most of Michigan now is within this 100 mile zone where uh, Border Patrol can set up checkpoints and stop anyone, right? Mm -hmm. And given the huge minority population in Southeast Michigan, uh, it does mean that if, you know, Border Patrol checkpoints move Uh, you know, become what they are, say, in Arizona, where uh, you cross from one city to another sometimes and you have to go through a border checkpoint. Uh, Just imagine how many people get uh, profiled, right? I mean, and so it is a huge problem. I just meant that from my standpoint, it felt like an inconvenience that we kind of laughed off and didn't make a huge deal of it. But of course, when it happens systematically on a mass scale to a certain group of people, and it is a huge infringement of rights. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about what's going on at the southern border, where we see much of the same kind of surge activity that we had seen during the Trump administration. And we see the Biden administration, I think, struggling to get its footing with how to deal with the people who are part of that surge, but also how to craft policy uh, in a way that doesn't punish you know, kids who are who are part of that surge uh, and doesn't suggest to people that we're not going to welcome immigrants, which was the hard stance of the of the previous administration. But but just give us a quick sense of what your analysis is of that situation at the border and how much blame or credit, I guess, you would give to either president, former President Trump or current President Biden. So, um, you know, first of all, there is this myth out there that there is a crisis at the border brewing. There is no crisis at the border. What there is is a recurring problem at the border. Mm-hmm. Uh, seasonally, uh, at this time when uh, it's the, uh, you know, the winter has uh, ended and summer hasn't yet set in and the uh, uh, climate is sort of temperate, there is always a rush from Central America to the United States. It's been going on for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only reason it didn't happen to the extent uh, uh, that it did in previous years last year was because of the pandemic. And, you know, I guess it would be possible to stop this rush if we, the, the Central Americans who are uh, rushing to the United States at that time are essentially escaping gang violence and persecution and also very, very abysmal economic conditions. So if we greet them at the border with the same kind of level of cruelty that they are facing at home, I guess we could stop them from coming from this you know, recurring problem. But let me just point out, even Trump, with his utterly draconian policies, was not really able to make a huge dent on the numbers. Uh, these numbers that the Biden administration is, appear, uh, is uh, uh, facing right now 
have been rising since last April. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a few months, they subsided after the pandemic, and then they started steadily rising. So it was something like uh, I have the numbers in my column, something like you know seventy thousand uh, in December, and now they are over a hundred thousand at this point. But even those are misleading, and they are misleading because of one policy that Trump enacted and Biden has not reversed. Uh, when the pandemic uh, happened, Biden, uh, Trump issued something called Title 42, which was an executive order, which just meant that anybody who was caught at the border was quickly just sort of sent back, deported back, either to uh, their country or shoved into Mexico without being processed in any way. So if you were an asylum seeker trying to get, gain entry, you were not accorded your legal right to a hearing. You were simply ejected from the country. Uh, and uh, uh, Biden, even though he, uh, you know, on the first day he was in office reversed, Trump's Muslim ban, the DACA ban, and, you know, all of that, he did not reverse Title 42. And, the, and that's relevant because, because now what's happening is because of Title 42, because people are not processed properly before they are ejected, mm-hmm. they keep trying to re-enter over and over again because re-entry is no longer a felony since they were not processed. They, um, uh, uh, you know, we don't know if their case was a legitimate uh, asylum case, so we can't really hold it against them. And so when they recross, you, so, so, the, the, so what this has done is created an incentive for them to repeatedly cross the border. So about 37% of the people who are trying to cross are kind of like repeat offenders. They keep trying to, you know, cross over and over again. And when you, once you subtract those, actually the border situation is the same as what it was in 2019 at the peak of Trump's cruel policies. Mm. So Biden, he needs to get rid of Title 42. And the reason he's not doing it is he's worried as to what the restrictionists are going to say if he gets rid of Title 42. Sure. And uh, so, you know, so that's kind of the point of my piece. Hey, Biden, you're getting damned uh, either way. The Tom Cottons of the world are already accusing you of creating a border crisis. You may as well do the right thing, get rid of Title 42 and uh, let these people be processed in a proper way. Give them an asylum hearing. Uh, scale up the border resources so that you know they can be treated properly and not cruelly the way Trump was doing, um, and you know take your lumps uh, uh, with the restrictions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as always, uh, the number here on the phones is three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. I'm talking with Sheikha Dalmia. She's a columnist with the Week. Has a new column out titled "Biden's Lose Lose Immigration Strategy," taking a look at how badly criticized the president will be no matter what he does uh, with immigration. And so he ought to focus on trying to solve the problem uh, in the right way. Uh, We'd love to hear from you during the segment as well. What do you hope to see from the Biden administration on immigration? What's your own assessment on how he's doing so far with this issue at the southern border that uh, we see on the news every day. Um, Do you think he's taking the right approach or would you like to see him change either in a more restrictionist uh, direction or in the direction of more open borders? Uh, As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Um, Sheik, I just want to throw something out here and and um, and see what you what your reaction is to it. What what if Biden simply tried to, through executive order and perhaps uh, somewhat through Congress, um, you know, tried to craft the long term sensible. Uh, approach to immigration that, for instance, passed uh, uh, passed the, the the one half of Congress, you know, more than a decade ago. We were so close with that compromise uh, bill, and the Obama administration, I think, really botched the politics there and didn't get it done. Um, but but if he's in a lose lose position, why not go for broke in that way uh, and and at least try to settle the issue once and for all. Is that what you're 
Is that what you're sort of thinking of when you when you say that? Yes, uh, actually, absolutely. That is what I'm thinking of. And uh, to Biden's credit, uh, uh, within the first, he had promised that within the first hundred days he would introduce a comprehensive reform bill, and he has done that. I mean, there is a bill both in the Senate and the House, uh, and there are many good things in that bill. Um, you know, it does. It goes a very long way to giving relief to immigrants, both at the high skilled and the low skilled level, who are stuck in America's broken immigration system. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, if you are an Indian H-1B visa holder, uh, it takes you literally a lifetime to get your uh, green card, if you get it at all. Uh, given how backlogged the system is. And he uh, eliminates um, per country limits on green cards and allows a reallocation of green cards from countries that are not using them to those that are, which would really give a lot of relief. He's even got a program in there where if you're a low-skilled worker and you've clocked a certain number of working hours in the United States, you could uh, apply for a green card, which you are currently not able to do on that visa. And so he, there are many, many elements in that bill. The other good thing about the bill is that it actually is choose a border enforcement approach. So it's not, it's not you know, trying to build walls. It's not trying to increase border patrolling. It's not, it doesn't want to build boats with crocodiles to stop illegals from coming into the country. It is choose all of that. It actually fixes, it, uh, focuses on fixing our broken system. The trouble with it is it's only focused on those in the country. It's not offering new uh, legal options for Central American migrants and uh, Mexican migrants to come here. And that is very, very significant because currently, in fact, if you look at the numbers of the people who are trying to come to the United States, uh, it was for the last like six or seven or 10 years, it was the case that Mexican men had stopped coming because economic conditions in Mexico had improved. So they didn't really need to come to the United States for jobs. In the current crop of, uh, uh, you know, border crossings that we are seeing, actually the Mexican numbers are up, which means that if you want to avoid sowing uh, a future undocumented problem, you have to create legal avenues for Mexican workers to come to this country. This was not a liberal idea. This was a conservative idea in the Obama reform bill that you mentioned. There were Republicans who wanted generous guest worker visa programs with uh, Mexico uh, at that time. But that's sadly absent from the Biden bill. And he really needs to like think about opening, opening those if he wants to really get a handle on this problem. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about immigration with Sheikha Dalmia of the week. Uh, we also will get your calls and comments. If you want to join the conversation, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm always really, really glad you have joined us. Uh, my guest is Sheikha Dalmia. She's a columnist with The Week. She has a new column out titled Biden's Lose-Lose Immigration Strategy, talking about the tough choices the new president faces with immigration reform and the fact that he probably can't make people happy doing any of the things that uh, need to be done, so he might as well kind of go for broke and try to solve the problem in a grand sense, which is something that we have seen presidents fail to do for some time now. We'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you think of the way that the Biden administration has handled immigration so far? What do you think of these stories that we see from the southern border about uh, people crossing in in big numbers and uh, children crossing uh, by themselves? Uh, how do you think the Biden administration has handled that issue and how would you like to see them handle not just that issue but again the broader issue uh, going forward as always the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019 that's 577-1019 you can also go to the wdt facebook page put comments there go to twitter and hashtag detroit today and we'll try to include you 
in the program that way. Let's go to Ali in Dearborn. Welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, thank you for the great conversation. I agree with a lot of the points that you and the guests have made. I'm calling just to make one comment with regards to your conversation on um, how authority uh, interacts with folks of different race and color. And I wanted to indicate that, you know, I've had the background of of being um, in three different continents, ultimately landing on the soil here in the USA. And that really helps with your diversity and ability to, you know, appreciate and absorb the different cultures and perspectives people have. I just think in America, most Americans are limited and, and don't have that broad vision. And I think it's really, it's incumbent on the individual to, um, be as flexible and try to put themselves in other people's shoes. And that's such a difficult thing to do. I'm not trying to give an out here to authorities, but I think many of us of, of different race and color and creed have experienced it and we got our ways of dealing with it. And I don't get upset at folks like that. I just think it's uh, limited knowledge and ignorance and we have an obligation to help bring them on board to understand that what makes us different is our heart and mind. Mm. Uh, Ali, I really appreciate the call and the thoughts there. Uh, that's a really interesting take on all of this. Sheikha, I wonder if you can talk just a little about the cultural dynamics surrounding immigration and the changing demographics of this country, which I think is a really separate issue from the politics in Washington or even from the policy that comes out of that politics. We still have a lot of... I think cultural uh, a change that that we need to to kind of indulge at this point and and really lean into because the country is changing so fast. Right, and uh, so, yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. The shifting demographics um, also means that you you know they generate a great deal of cultural anxiety on the part of uh, the native population that sees things around them changing. Uh, to some extent, that's understandable, um, you know, when you have your neighborhoods that have had a certain character for a very long time, uh, you know, kind of change in front of your eyes. Uh, I can imagine that uh, that is a difficult thing to accept. On the other hand, uh, as your caller mentioned, this kind of, you know, the diversity uh, that America has um, also is a great, great strength of this country. It also contains within, it, within itself the seeds of cultural renewal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get new ways, your uh, new ideas get injected, uh, you know, and uh, they help uh, uh, regenerate the culture of the, uh, you know, of the host country for the immigrants. It also allows immigrants to shed some of their uh, less than, uh, you know, uh, savory ways sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, just from personal experience, caste system in India is, uh, you know, very much more pronounced in India than it is within immigrants, uh, Indian immigrants who are over here. I mean, caste is just not that much uh, an issue. I'm not saying it's no issue at all, but it's something that, you know, you get exposed to America's very non-hierarchical, egalitarian cultural ethos, and it forces you to rethink your own ways. And so it's in some ways immigration, the uh, you know, sort of the openness and the sifting of various uh, cultural habits allows, in my view, for a better culture to emerge. But of course, not everybody sees it that way. Yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the things that I, I am quite critical of the Biden administration on is that, you know, they're still very much playing defensive on the, on the narrative about immigrants. They are very much still playing with the, you know, restrictionist line that uh, immigrants are somehow not uh, assets that they are somehow liabilities for the country, and so we are going to be more generous towards immigrants, but we are still going to limit how many you know sort of come in now you know I am much more inclined to having uh, very very generous uh, policies opening up the borders mm-hmm. with very few restrictions, but even if you are going to uh, restrict immigration uh, restrict the numbers they it you still have to make the case for why immigration is a net asset for the country. Now, Canada, by the way, has made that switch. I mean, 
there, they, you know, officially there is sort of a pro-immigration, pro-immigrant narrative that's still lacking in, uh, among politicians, even liberal politicians in America. And I think that is a big problem. Uh, in one of my pieces, I think in the same piece uh, that you are featuring, I do actually mention that that's, you know, if there is a failure on the part of the Biden administration, mm-hmm. it is a failure to change the terms of the narrative on immigration. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Sheikha Dalmia with the week. Her new column is titled Biden's Lose Lose Immigration Strategy. Always great to have you here with us uh, on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining. Always a pleasure, Stephen. Yes. Okay. That is going to do it for us today. I am actually headed to get my second dose of the Pfizer vaccine this afternoon. And that means that uh, I'm going to take a day tomorrow to be away from Detroit today. Uh, Jake Neer, our senior producer, is going to sit in instead. Uh, he is going to have a conversation about the state of child care nationally and here in Michigan and whether or not the possibility of federal assistance could provide relief in this sector. And then I will be back on Wednesday. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.